Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the evening service. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. Tonight's reading is Judges 6, verses 25 to 32. That's on page 250 in the Pew Bibles. That's Judges chapter 6, starting at verse 25, page 250 in the Pew Bibles. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished, with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, Who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerobal that day, saying, Let Baal contend with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Veronica. Let's just pray for a moment for the Lord's help. Lord, we thank you for the joy of meeting together in your name. Lord, thank you for all those wonderful things that we've been able to sing about already and join together in worship and praise of you. Lord, we uh, long to hear further from you. We pray that you would bring the words of Scripture alive by your Spirit into our hearts and open our eyes to see wonderful things about you and change our lives that they might be more conformed uh, to you, more in the pattern of the Lord Jesus whom we worship. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, good evening, everyone. I wonder what you think. What makes a good iconoclast? What makes a good iconoclast? Okay, that's probably not the question that uh, you were you were most expecting to hear today uh, in church. And honestly, it's probably not in your top 10 kind of really curious questions that you'd love to get sorted out at some point in your life. I recognize that. Perhaps like me until very recently, you don't really know what that question actually means. What makes a good iconoclast? But bear with me for a second. 
Bear with me. What makes a good iconoclast? An iconoclast, I have learned, technically, is someone who destroys icons, destroys pictures, statues, sculptures. Uh, we use the word more generally too, to uh, describe anyone who in some way undermines a widely recognized emblem or symbol. Iconoclasm has a great and significant history. Here are a couple of famous instances. Here's the first one. Communist Party in Russia at the time of the revolution. Here's a picture of them raising the Cathedral of Christ the Saviour in Moscow to the ground in 1920 or so. It was the most glorious, prominent symbol of Christianity in the city at the time. They just destroyed it. Powerful message. They were saying, look, Christianity is over in this nation. Interesting how that panned out. Here is the before and after of the destruction of one of these 6th century Buddha statues uh, in Bamiyan in Afghanistan by the Afghan Taliban. Same kind of idea. We're going to have no more gods, so we're just going to erase the statue. Here's something very different. Uh, Here are Tommy Smith and John Carlos giving their black power salute at the 1968 Olympics. The glove, the gesture, upstretched arm, uh, completely overturning our expectations of an Olympic podium and thereby uh, giving a powerful message against racism uh, in elite sport. Here's another one. You know these guys? The Just Stop Oil uh, protesters just uh, lobbed a bit of uh, tomato soup at Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers. Uh, Here is a a fascinating visual intervention. I love this next one. Okay, if you can see it, those pink things are seesaws. Okay, and this is the US-Mexico border. So they they built these seesaws to create community cohesion and, and, and bring people together on either side of this barrier. Super. And here is some very, finally, some very recent iconoclasm. Anyone know who this guy is? Colston. That's it. That's Edward Colston, English merchant, slave trader, philanthropist of Bristol, once on a plinth, now torn down from his plinth, defaced, lobbed in the river, and now lying in a museum with a graffiti left in place as a great and powerful gesture of decolonization. Um, I will leave you to decide what you think of that. Anyway, we, we like to sometimes have a bit of a chat, get to know one another, sort of open up some of the uh, you know, ideas that we might have. Don't worry, this is going somewhere. We're going to talk about a particular iconoclast. But before we do that, I'd like to ask the question, what makes a good iconoclast? Speak to the person next to you. You might want to hear all the images. You might want to say, which, which ones of these do you think is successful as a way of bringing down something using uh, an emblem or, 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 or a picture, okay? You've got a couple of uh, minutes uh, next to you. If you don't really understand the question, talk about the weather or something like that. No, hopefully, hopefully it's, hopefully it's going to be good. What makes a good iconoclast? And why? And why? Okay, so um, there we go. That's a nice way of uh, boiling up a little bit of, uh, you know, the way that you think. Hopefully, now listen... That's not completely random, because uh, today we are looking at an example of iconoclasm. I wonder what you said when uh, asked the question, what makes a good iconoclast? I guess all of these ones, in their own way, are kind of deeply shocking, offensive, at least to some people, uh, to a certain order uh, of the world. And for good or ill, they're in this really powerful visual way, overturning... uh, things that were at the heart of people's identity and way of life, really powerfully altering things from then onwards. And we're coming today to a moment in the history of the uh, the people of Israel where that's the kind of thing 
that happened. We're coming uh, to the story of Gideon. Here he is. Uh, one more. No, he's not. No, he's not. Do you see what I've done there? Next one. There we go. There we go. Um, you can talk to me afterwards if you didn't know what I did there. Uh, this is Gideon. Uh, and uh, this is a, an ancient picture of him. Actually, from last week, if you remember, he was there, the, uh, the angel uh, lighting the, the, the food that he gave as an offering. Gideon. Gideon broke down the altar of Baal and the Asherah pole beside it, as we just read. He set up an altar to the Lord instead to bring home the message. He used the wood from the Asherah pole to offer the sacrifice to the Lord. And this was his first mission from God, uh, to overturn the idolatry in his own life and in the life of the people of Israel at the time. His great act of iconoclasm. But whilst Baal worship uh, and sacrifices was obviously a big deal back then, that may feel a little bit distant to us uh, today. Um, uh, I'm imagining uh, that, you know, that's not immediately our first concern. But actually, I think that as we look at this this evening, I'm certainly praying this. As we look at this together this evening, we'll see that for all of us, we have a similar battle. We will see, hopefully, how we face this challenge of overturning the idols in our lives and putting God right alone on the throne. And I'm praying that we're going to be able to find insight and inspiration of how we might do this and make the Lord and the Lord only the object of all of our trust, all of our worship, as we look at these verses. Uh, The way we're going to do this, I'm going to unpack the story a little bit more, uh, and then we're going to spend some time thinking about what might be our idols uh, and then finally, uh, uh, we'll, we'll be trying to draw our eyes uh, away from those things towards uh, the Lord Jesus, towards the one who is really worth all of our worship. And I pray, uh, draw our hearts to him for another week. Okay, so uh, back to the beginning and a bit more on Gideon's day. Okay, so here, here's the background. Life is hard uh, for the people of Israel. Um, they've fallen under the oppressive rule of the neighboring peoples, the Midianites, Indeed, God has actually just sent a a prophet. Uh, You can look back at the beginning of uh, chapter 6 to explain why this has happened. The prophet comes to them and says, uh, on God's behalf, look, the Lord rescued you. He brought you out of Egypt. Uh, uh, He saved you. He told you, I'm the Lord your God. Uh, Don't worship any other gods. Um, And don't worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But, but you have not listened to me. The people had not listened to God. How had they not listened to God? Well, the house of Gideon was a fine example of how they hadn't listened to him. They worshipped Yahweh, the God of Israel, certainly did. But it seemed they worshipped him just as one of a whole array of different gods who each got their own little slice of devotion. And uh, we we get a little bit of insight into that when we read read between the lines of the passage that we had uh, read. Um, Thank you, Veronica, for reading so beautifully. So verse 25 it talks about, second half, tear down your father's altar to Baal and the Asherah pole uh, beside it. So Gideon, he's, a, he's, a, he's an Israelite, he's a member of the people of God. His father is Joash. Uh, we may safely assume, uh, particularly from, from Joash's name, it's got Yahweh, the God of Israel's name in it. He too identified as, as an Israelite. But Joash, Gideon's father, also had his own altar to Baal. Okay, Baal was the most prominent of the many Canaanite deities uh, of the time. The worship of Baal took many forms, often with an Asherah pole, uh, 
that Asherah pole symbolized a goddess who, as it were, would stand next to the god uh, Baal in worship. And so these guys, where they worshipped Yahweh, the god of Israel, and they worshipped Baal. Uh, and, and combined them together. And they didn't seem, didn't seem to think that was much of an issue. But it really was. Uh, because if they were listening to the commandments, in fact, they didn't have to listen to nine of them, just listen to the first one. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. God wanted single-hearted devotion to him from his people. And, you know, God was not just trying to catch people out on a technicality here. God alone is sovereign. He knows that he alone has what we need. He alone holds our ways and our times in his hands. Nothing else can deliver. And so it's right for us. It's only right that he alone is the object of our worship. And so the Lord had chosen this guy, Gideon, to bring the people of Israel back in line with that command. Okay, so that's the story. So far, hopefully, so clear. But what's that got to do with you and me? I'm going to hazard a guess that Canaanite fertility God worship is not the number one presenting temptation for you this week. Maybe, if it is. I mean, there's a very specific application for you, but most of us, I'm guessing, that's not necessarily where we are. But, but I think all of us are challenged in some way with the very same temptation that Gideon faced and the people, to worship something alongside God, to give the best of our imagination and uh, our, our minds and our hearts to something alongside or even over God. And so just considering Gideon's experience, I'd like to just uh, think about three principles that might help us in reordering that in our lives. Number one, spot your idols. Number two, battle your idols. And number three, worship God. First of all, spot your idols. Uh, Let's uh, have the slide up there if we may. Spot your idols. In the uh, early 2010s, Uh, there was some research produced uh, about how Apple products offered a quasi-religious experience. Uh, Now, once you think about this a little bit, it actually is pretty obvious. Uh, It's not so much in the news these days, but there was a time when it really was a big deal. They would each year have this massive fanfare about the WWDC, uh, the Worldwide Developers Conference, and it was... They'd set this place up in California. It looked a little bit like a temple, frankly. And it was always Steve Jobs, the great prophet or guru of the technology world, who would wear his monastic black roll neck. And he would come out uh, and and show the latest iPhone to rapturous wonder of all the Mac devotees who would all kind of ooh and ah. And, uh, you know, people spoke about it as the cult of Mac. Uh, And I'll be honest, uh, I I was um, was one of those who were quite taken in uh, by this. Um, I don't know whether some of you remember this. Uh, there was a time that the, when the iPad was launched. It was kind of the first tablet. And I was remembering this week, I actually got my wife, Emily, to go to the States and, and buy me one before it was on sale in this country. You know, I, I'm, I think I said something like, you know, it's going to just immeasurably enhance my ability to deliver a sermon or something like that. You know, I was like, absolutely have to have it right now. Just to be clear, I didn't get her to go just for that. She, I mean, she was, she was there anyway. But it was quite expensive. Did I really need that? Actually, I still have that iPad uh, one in my house, and I, I really appreciate this about technology when it hangs around. It's just really massive, fat, and slow. And I and I look at it, and I'm just reminded of those things that, for a moment, just seem like the best things since sliced bread are actually uh, they fade pretty quickly, don't they? 
And that's just one example. Technology can be an idol. It, it, can, it can seem like it's going to just fix everything for us. And that's, that was one I didn't spot straight away, certainly. And actually, for all of us, spotting our idols is not that easy. Let's go back to Gideon for a moment. Now, we're not really told in the passage, uh, but I think it's, it's nice, isn't it, to wonder, what do you think life was like for Gideon before he got the command to tear down the, the altar? You know, did he walk past the altar to Baal every day, just grumbling and feeling really deep discontent? Perhaps he did. I have to say, I, I myself, I find it more easy to believe that, like everyone else in the village, he just kind of got used to it. Yes, yes, Dad's Baal altar. Uh, and he didn't really see the big problem. Yeah, it's just what we do. We, just, we worship Yahweh and we worship Baal, and that's kind of how it is. It took God, I, I imagine, to really shake him up before he could see that. And perhaps we're the same. You know, perhaps our idols are, are hiding in plain view in our family, uh, in our house, in, in our culture right underneath our nose, and, and we've got that challenge of spotting them. So how do we spot them? Well, I mean, sometimes it's amazing the Lord, like he does with Gideon, absolutely speaks to us, and he says, that thing, you need to get rid of it. Uh, and obviously that's wonderful. But sometimes it's not so obvious, and we need to work at it. Tim Keller writes uh, the following. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Let's just say that again. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. I wonder what it is in your life that fits into that description. What is it that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God? It might be uh, material things. Perhaps you find yourself controlled by food or alcohol. Uh, Maybe you find yourself utterly absorbed by a housing project. Like everything is on hold until that's just right. Uh, maybe your imagination is principally taken up by a car or a holiday that you're just dreaming of, of getting or buying. And you can't really think of anything else. They'll not get excited about anything else until you've got that. Material things can be idols. Relationships can be idols. Maybe you're longing to find a partner. Uh, if that's been going for a long time, that's a really tough place to be. And the challenge is that the, the really good and healthy desire for companionship and, and friendship can morph into idolatry. And we, 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 get, we become servants of the God of relationship who says, look, perfection uh, can only be achieved. You are necessarily incomplete, doomed, in fact, if you don't have your other half. That's what the, the God, the relationship God says. Or, you know, any compromise will do to get that relationship. And in that sense, relationships can become an idol. Sex can become an idol. You know, I think part of our struggle with, around human sexuality right, in our culture is that we idolize sex. We believe that sex completes us. So if you're not having sex, if you're not having amazing sex, you're some, there's some problem with you. 
You're not enough. Which is an extraordinary thing to think, isn't it? Because Jesus didn't have sex, and he was surely the most fulfilled and complete human being that ever lived. What else? Well, uh, I guess the, there are some questions that we can ask that really help us here. What is it that gives me the greatest joy? If the answer to that isn't God, then that's, that's a pointer. Perhaps, you know, career progression is that thing. And, and just to be clear, there's, there's nothing wrong with, you know, finding joy in your work in serving the Lord to the best of your abilities. But sometimes that turns into the pursuit of your own success, your own status, beyond anything else. And, you know, that is something that can be as live an issue for a missionary or a minister as uh, for an oil executive or banker or choose your kind of commercial villain or whatever you, you want to do. We might ask, what makes me angry or anxious? That's another great way of thinking about uh, where our idols might be. What makes me angry or anxious? And then follow those thoughts. So, for example, it may be that we just find ourselves constantly grinding in anxiety about our finances. Now, obviously, in some circumstances, that's a really appropriate place to be. Sometimes, you know, the situation really is really tricky. But sometimes also that happens in a situation where, frankly, you're okay financially. You have what you need, but you just keep going back to your bank balance and just looking at those numbers because that financial security is our idol. That's the thing we're most attached to. We could find ourselves totally absorbed by our image, um, endlessly pursuing a better figure uh, or or complexion or or style. I I read it on the BBC today that there's a guy who's invested more than $2 million in um, trying to keep himself forever young. That, that seems sort of, that may be slightly idolatrous. It's a challenge, isn't it, to spot our idols? There are just a few ideas. And of course, there may be many more. And as this uh, story reminds us, the one person who never misses our idols is the Lord. So, you know, perhaps the great place to start is, Lord, just teach me. Teach me. Where is it that my, my heart has wandered? Give me insight. Spot your idols. Okay, that's the first one. Spot your idols. Second, once you've spotted them, you need to battle your idols. Battle your idols. Verse 25. The same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. So this getting rid of idols turns out to be uh, quite a big job for Gideon. He's got to dismantle this this altar. He's got to hack down this pole. It's a ten-man job. Significant. Uh, But it's not just technically and administratively difficult. There's a further challenge. I don't know whether you noticed this. There's There's a very knowing kind of bit here. I love this in verse 27. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. Now, we, we want to talk to Gideon about strategy here, don't we? Like, ten people, quite a big deal. It doesn't last very long before everyone works it out. We, we, we feel for him, right? He's got this command from the Lord. I'm just at least not going to do it right in front of everyone's nose. He was afraid. You can't blame him. Uh, of course, as I say, the, uh, uh, the ruse only delays what he fears. Verse 28, in the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. 
they ask each other, who did this? They, they find out it's Gideon, and they, they go to his dad, verse 30, bring out your son, he must die, uh, and, uh, because he's cut down this, this altar. So getting rid of idols, godly iconoclasm, if you like, it's a battle. It's a battle. And even when you succeed, you won't necessarily be thanked for it. In fact, it can make you pretty unpopular, or at least incomprehensible, to your nearest and dearest. Why did you take that out of your life? That's crazy. I've certainly seen this in my own, uh, in my own life. Um, I was uh, happy to admit I was never any good at any ball sports uh, when, when I was at school, nor indeed beyond. Uh, but I did get into one sport, which was, was rowing, uh, which you can be good at if you have a high boredom threshold, which I have. Just keep doing the same thing many, many times uh, when everyone else has got bored. If you do keep going, you're actually quite successful at that. And so by the time I got to the end of my school, I was, I was reasonably good at that. And um, uh, I think that became something of an idol for me. And the fact that it had gone quite well, actually, for my sport, kind of fed that idol. But then I went to uh, university and uh, things turned around. I was competing against much better and more gifted athletes. And so I remember uh, one weekend, uh, we were at um, training for the weekend and um, it was looking like I was going to get cut from the squad. And I was just devastated. You know, my, my whole world, the whole of who I was, was, was about to come crashing down. And I remember talking to a Christian mentor about this uh, uh, in the run-up at the time. And I, I don't know what I was expecting. I was probably expecting a bit of, bit of sympathy, uh, perhaps a little bit of perspective. What I wasn't expecting him to say was this. Do you think you should give up rowing? He said, do you think you should give up rowing? I said, what are you talking about? Absolutely not. It's like the last thing I'm going to give up. This is me. How, how dare he suggest that, in fact, I was thinking. But actually, we, we talked about it, and he gently helped me see that it become a massive idol in my life. Um, and perhaps at that time, it really was that bad that I needed to consider whether I needed to get rid of this completely if I was going to stay uh, faithful to the Lord. And although I didn't actually give up my rowing completely, I think I learned something really, really important at that moment. I learned that the God of sporting success is a harsh God. So when you win, he feeds you with confidence. But then when you lose, he devastates you. When you're injured, he crushes you. When you can't keep up with everyone else around you anymore, or for whatever, you're kind of falling off the standard, he crushes you. I didn't want to worship that God anymore. And I'm grateful for the friend who was prepared to make that kind of radical suggestion to help me see how serious and the kind of dramatic move I might have to make to put the Lord back on the throne of my life. Now, I say it's a cheap story to tell because I didn't give up rowing. So did I get that right? I don't know. But uh, hopefully it's helpful for you. I wonder what it would take for you to battle your idols. You know, so we going back through that different description of idols, I wonder which one of those you connected with. What would it look like for you to battle that idol in your life? You know, perhaps your idol is comfort. And your battle is, can you take a risk for the Lord? Uh, 
perhaps your idol is image. You need a new strategy. You're going to look in the mirror each morning and you say, do you know what? The Lord is like medium interested in my external appearance. He's really interested in the heart of me. I'm just going to tell that to myself. That's the bit that matters for today, not the other stuff. Whatever the battle is for you, and I don't know what it is, it may be that right now you're facing a really radical situation and it's kind of, you need to tear the altar down. Uh, perhaps you need to change the places that you go. You know, perhaps you're battling with pornography, for example, and you, just, you need to actually chuck your computer out for a while or give it to a friend if that's too crazy and tell them to give it back to you in a couple of months. Uh, perhaps it's just changing the habits that you, you have. It may be changing the company you keep. You know, certain people that you, you're with, they just, at the moment, you just can't stop struggling with that, with that idol while you're with them. I don't know what it is. We all have our struggles in this uh, regard. And we seek the Lord for his help. But there is a battle going on. So spot your idols, back your idols, and finally, worship God, worship God. Verse 24, 5 again. That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. And by the way, this bull was probably intended for the worship of Baal. So this is a particularly pointed gesture. Take that bull, he says, tear down your father's altar to Baal, cut down the Asherah pole beside it, and then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height, using the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down, and then offer that second bull as a burnt offering to the Lord. So instead of worshipping the idol, go worship God. Um, little story from uh, our household. As you can imagine, um, uh, the, the Adams household, my children are just, you know, universally incredibly well behaved and never uh, sort of do anything wrong. So what I'm about to say to you is obviously a very, very rare occurrence. Um, but sometimes uh, my kids squabble. And um, one of the things that I have learned, in the early days, what I used to do is I'd hear them squabble, and then I'd kind of go in there and say, don't squabble, stop squabbling, what's the issue, you know? Oh, this, 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 right, okay, well, let's listen to you, and let's listen to you, and see if we can, you know, it's a really bad solution for trying to deal with the squabble. What I've learned is the solution to the squabble is bring something else, some distraction in, like just leave the squabble, and let's, let's all come over here and look at this different thing. Bear with me. In many ways, that's the solution to our idolatry. There's a place for saying, do you know what, that God is so rubbish. Just think about how rubbish that God is. You really don't want to mention, uh, worship him. But actually, the best thing for our idolatry is to put our eyes somewhere else, to turn our eyes to the Lord and see how wonderful he is, how much better he is than all the other things that we go after. And the brightness of the Lord is the thing that draws us away from the darkness of our idols. The answer to tearing down our idols is the Lord Jesus shines brighter, goes deeper in our hearts. And I want to just leave you with this, with this image. I'm sure you know this passage really well. It's John chapter 4. Uh, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman. Uh, and perhaps you remember, you know, he, he meets this woman in the middle of the day and um, they, they get talking and he asks her to help, help him at the well, get some water, and it transpires she, she's got, she's had six husbands, or she's on to her seventh, or something like that. Um, and then he talks about how he, ha he, he offers water that will well up to 
uh, eternal life within her. Um, He says, those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's it's an amazing picture. You know, it seems like this lady, perhaps she's her her idol, thing she's been chasing in these relationships, and she's just longing for that seventh husband who's really going to finally be a decent egg or whatever. And Jesus says, stop running after that. Come to me. Come to me. I will give you water that will never run dry. You will never thirst again. I will give you satisfaction. And I guess that's our hope, that we turn our eyes towards Jesus. In fact, that's what we're going to close by singing in just a moment. Uh, I'll ask the band to come up and join me uh, as, we, as, I, as I say this, actually. We're going to sing these words. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let me just say that one last time. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's just take a moment of quiet to uh, think a little bit on uh, what we've just looked at. Um, You might want to give some of those thoughts to the Lord in prayer. In a moment, I'm going to lead us in a time of confession to come to the Lord and just recognize some of the places where we've turned our worship elsewhere. And then uh, Stu will lead us in worship. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon Podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week.